Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April the 12th, 2016, and this is episode 1764. And this is the first ever officially selected by the audience topic through official polling. I've done stuff like this in the past once or twice for Facebook, uh, using Facebook, but I've never done it officially as a poll. Um, last week I put up a poll selecting the next three Tuesday shows, which will round out the month of April. First one being today on small-scale food forestry, or we'd also call it forest gardening. Uh, the next one is going to be on making and using herbal medicines, and the one after that is going to be on outdoor cooking, grilling, smoking, that type of thing. And if you don't like those subjects, well, vote the next time around, because I'm letting you know right now we do have the new poll up already for May, and I have 10 topics for you in May to pick from. Uh, and those topics are setting up a remote bug-out property, how to talk to friends and family about prepping without sounding like a loon, investing in gold and silver, selecting and understanding bullet types for hunting, practice, and tactical use, 20 items you should add to your preps if you don't already have them, how to determine which business you should start, training dogs to fit in on the homestead, agri ac aquaculture for protein production. So that's aquaculture, not aquaponics. Finding the right property to make into a homestead and using Airsoft as a training tool. So we have all of those for you to pick from. You can vote for up to five of those on the poll this time around, and the top five will advance and be selected for the next month's uh, polls. As you can hear, if you've been listening to past episodes, three of the topics were potential topics for April. If those three topics fail again, they will be out of the running in June. That's not that they'll never come back, but they'll be out of the running for June. That will mean the audience has spoken, and we're not interested in that for a while. So on today's show, again, we're talking about forest gardening or small-scale food forestry. What we're really talking about here is developing small systems on our properties that emulate forest systems to provide us with food, fuel, medicines, fibers, wildlife habitat, beauty, and increase our property values. That, that's the things that, that we can do with this type of a system. And it's a very unique type of system, of course made famous by the people in permaculture, but it goes back a lot further than that. This is basically horticultural and focusing on using perennials as the base. They become the base paints on your palette. It doesn't mean there's not a place for annuals. It's just that the, the, the framework is built on perennial plants that come back year after year. And when you see one done properly, you immediately think, I want that. Now, I'm not going to say that everybody's in a situation that owns even a small piece of property that it works for. Some places it may not work as well. But most places, if you have even a tenth of an acre, you can do it. I'm going to actually give you a resource for a book today on uh, two guys that bought basically a duplex and each took a side of it and they took a 10th acre backyard and they turned it into something amazing. And it's not only producing them food and fuel and medicines and fibers, it's producing so many perennial plants in, in abundance that are coming out almost like weeds as the plants replicate themselves. It's giving them a small income and reselling those plants to others who want to replicate what they're doing. And they're doing that in Massachusetts. So even though I'm in Texas, I often hear, well, that works for you. Well, Massachusetts has a definitely has a different climate than Texas does. So you can do this in just about any climate. It's going to be a great show. I hope you enjoy it. Before we get into that, let's take a look at the year that was the episode to get some historical perspective. I've got two for you today from Alex Shrugged. One is called 
The Beast of J. Voodon, and the other one is called The American Sugar Act. I'm not going to talk about The Sugar Act or read it. I'm just going to say that if you actually read it, you see the genesis of the, the ferment that becomes the American Revolution over taxation that we would trade a lot for today. I think we would all be very happy to pay the taxes that the colonists were paying at that time. And my observation in that is, and look at the taxes that people in Great Britain pay today. And this is why I think it was right for the colonists to say no. Because if you let a government tax you, it will use the money it makes from taxing to tax you again. And then it will use that money to tax you further. And you'll end up where we are today, taxed into oblivion and oppressed. So, But I'm going to read this one because you've all been touched by this story one way or another in popular culture and literature, what have you, and you may not know it. A little girl is crossing a French pasture when a wolf-like beast the size of a cow comes leaping across the field with deadly intent. But the cows in the pasture fend off the beast with their horns. The little girl runs to report the incident. Shortly thereafter, several adults and children are found dead and torn apart. Hunters with muskets manage to shoot it, but the beast continues to reign its terror for several years. Finally, hundreds of hunters are hired to sweep the forest. One hunter corners the beast and puts a silver bullet into it. It falls dead, and when they open it up, they find human bones in the stomach. Estimates of the dead are in the hundreds, but historians reasonably sure that at least 60 were killed by something. My take by Alex shrugged. Really? A wolf as big as a cow? Reports made it at times very reports made at the time varied so widely that it's difficult to credit any of it. The newspaper reporters seem to delight in shocking their readers with gory details, thus increasing the sales of newspapers. No, that's just marketing. It is theorized that it was the mutant wolf, but no one really believes it. Nevertheless, the beast is now part of popular culture, becoming the subject of popular TV shows such as MTV's Teen Wolf and the History Channel. I suggest taking it all with a very large grain of salt. Yeah, I would say a large grain of salt, too, but here's my question. Well, what was it? It wasn't nothing. It wasn't like the Dracula saga that was based loosely on Ivan the Terrible and created and fabricated and played on the superstitions and beliefs. Something killed 60 people. Let's say that even the historical estimates are off by a, you know, a twofold. And it's 30 people. Something killed 30 people with human bones in its stomach. And it was pretty big to kill that many people. What was it? Who knows? I don't. I don't think it was a werewolf, but it could have been just a mutant wolf. It could have been something else. Is it possible? Is it just possible that it's one of those rare creatures that people say exists or still exists? Some sort of creature that went extinct, but yet there was some small remnant left of it? I don't know. I have no idea. But it is interesting to know that the story of the werewolf is actually based on real events. And by the way, the newspaper people will hype anything to get you to pay attention. The more things change, the more they stay the same. With that, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, business owners, would you like the ability to reach more than 100,000 TSP community members for as little as $5 a year? If so, consider advertising your business in the TSP Business Directory. A listing in our directory shows your support of the community and a commitment to value-for-value value exchange with other members. To find something or to be found, just check out the directory at tspbiz.com. That's tspbiz.com to learn more. Hey, folks, if silver and gold are not part of your current economic preparedness plan, they should be. In fact, for over eight years, I have recommended that listeners keep 5 to 10% of their wealth in precious metals as a wealth assurance program. 
and JM Bullion is my personal choice for all my precious metal purchases. They offer some of the best pricing in the industry and free shipping on top of it. Check out jmbullion.com to learn more. Next up, we have the Bob Wells plant of the week, and that really fits in great today because Bob Wells specializes in perennial plants that provide edibles for us that can come back year after year, which is what we're talking about today. His plant of the week for us today is the Arbequinia olive. This is the most cold-hardy variety of olives known and also has one of the highest olive productions and oil yields of all olive plants. The soil that this plant is planted in should be well-drained. The tree has an upright habitat. We recommend covering the tree the first year, the first winter, if the temperatures are going to drop below freezing. Once the tree's been in ground for a year, it is well-rooted. It will then begin to withstand colder temperatures. The older the tree gets, the more cold-hardy it becomes. The oil is sweet, delicate, and fragrant with intense fruitiness but low levels of bitterness and spiciness. You can find this plant more at bobwellsnursery.com. My experience was that all of the ones I planted from Bob or otherwise ended up dead on me. They didn't end up dead from the winter so much, though. They didn't really make it through their first summer. This is something much like citrus, where this year I've come in with four uh, Arctic Frost uh, Satsumas. I'm going to give it another try in the future, but I'm going to get my system in a more advanced state before I do. And of course, my uh, property is a very harsh environment for anything to grow in. Um, I would definitely look at creating heat catch systems for this if you're anywhere borderline. And I would say it, that it will grow in zone 7 is possibly a little bit optimistic under ideal circumstances that 8 and up would be even better. All right, with that, um, let's get into the main topic of today's show, which, of course, is small-scale forest systems or forest gardens is another way to look at them. And I want to start out with, well, what exactly is a food forest or a forest garden? What is that, for those that aren't familiar with the concept? It is basically a managed forest system. That's the best way to look at it. But it's not managed for a single purpose, and it's generally not that large. I've seen some pretty large ones, some pretty amazing ones, but in general, most, especially if we get into forest gardening uh, rather than food forestry, It's, it's relatively small. When I say small, I'm talking it could be something that's 30 by 60 feet would be an example of one clump that I'm working on that I'm designing at that dimension right now. So that's not that big. Uh, it could be a piece of a tenth of an acre backyard. It doesn't have to be the whole backyard, or it could be a whole tenth of an acre backyard. And it's managed for the purpose of providing multiple yields. And the primary yields that we look to get out of a system like this, again, are food, fuel, medicines, fibers, and to also provide wildlife habitat and beauty. This is, this is what we're really trying to do with this. And it takes advantage of a multi-layered system that exists in all forests, that exists in all spaces, whether you want them there or not, the spaces exist, and if left to nature, in time nature will fill those spaces. We call those spaces layers. And it takes advantage of those layers, and it also takes advantage of what we call the edge effect. And the edge effect is where the greatest abundance is. So as a designer, rather than just making a huge block of forest, we can design forests in strips. We can design forests, if you think about a lake, as though it were something with lots of fjords or peninsulas in it. And by doing that, we, we increase the overall edge of the system. And to understand what I mean by all the abundances in the edge, I want you to think about it this way. Imagine sometime that you've been in a field and there was woods and you needed to get into the woods. And there wasn't a well-paved path. You're hunting, you're, you're fishing, you're doing something, you're bushcrafting, whatever, and you just need to get into the woods and there's no path in. 
what happens is as you approach the edge, you get into stickers and briars and bushes and low plants, high plants, a mixture, vines, ground covers, and you get in this gnarled mess. And if you've ever been a hunter, you've been in this mess. And you have to fight your way through it. And then as soon as you get just a couple feet into the forest, pretty much it sort of opens up. Even if it's young forest and it's dense, you can move around in there once you're inside it. But if you're anywhere where, let's say, it's been thinned out, and there's like a thinned out portion, you give it enough time, that will begin to rebuild itself, and it will become that tangled mess until it canopies out into a mature system. So in nature, what the forest wants to do is go to climax. And it goes to climax kind of at its own speed. Whatever the situation allows on the ground where the forest is growing, it heads toward that climax state. A forest in climax is when you walk into a forest and you feel like you're in a living organism. It's, it's, it's darker, it's cooler, the ground is covered with, with natural mulches, leaves, sticks, twigs, needles, everything. If you start to pull apart the floor, you'll dig six inches a foot sometimes. If you go and fall, when the leaf drops up, you might be two feet down while the leaves are still fluffed up before you find soil. And when you find that soil, it will be rich, it will be dark, and it will smell good. That's a forest in climax. Now, What we're trying to do in our system, and this is important for people to understand, is we're trying to edge the system toward climax, but hold it under climax for as long as possible. And it, 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 it's, it's a hard thing for people to get their head around because they're thinking, I want this big, full, incredible forest. And sometimes you do. With, with, when you talk about moving out to larger systems, we get into permaculture zone four food forestry and, 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 and farm forestry. Yeah, those go to be huge, big systems. But in these small-scale systems, if we allowed climax, if we allowed trees to get up and out and fully grown that have 40- and 50-foot canopies, how many trees and how many understory plants could we have on a tenth of an acre? And the answer is not a lot. So we're trying to, to, to hold back in most instances. Because this is the other thing you have to understand. There's no right or wrong. Well, there's, there's no real wrong way to do this unless you screw it up, okay? That's the best way to put it. There's no specific right way to do it. There's a million right ways to do it. Because if your goal is to have a lot of nuts and you want to grow things like golden seal and ginseng and deep forest plants and another yield you want is fungus and that's really what you want out of your forest then planting large trees, taking the climax as quickly as possible, getting a closed canopy system in place would be what you wanted to do. But again, that probably wouldn't work on the property the size of what we're talking about today. We're talking about from like, you know, let's say a tenth of an acre city lot up to about an acre is what I'm talking about today. So let's quickly review, and I do mean quickly, the seven layers of the forest system because they were already touched on this week. But it's the most important component for you to understand when you start figuring out, well, well, what do I want to plant next? What goes in this spot? The canopy we've just talked about, that's when you look, look at a forest, the top tree levels that are spread out. And that creates shade. And that creates lots of mulch. And then we have the subcanopy. These are your shorter trees that you'll find waiting for an opportunity to open in the canopy to go up and fill that. Or you find on the edges as you come from tall trees and you step down to your lower trees on the edge. And that's because the forest is actually walking forward into the field. It's advancing. And that's what forests do in natural situations unless something obstructs that. They, they, if, you, if you go out and you plant a one-acre forest in the middle of a field and, you're in a, and you plant the right types of trees for the climate, that have the ability to self-replicate, 
and you walk away from it, and you come back in a hundred years, there'll be a hundred acres of forest. It will grow exponentially over time. As it becomes two acres, it will become four. As if it becomes four, it will become eight. And that's what forests do. They walk forward. And their younger trees are simply smaller. So subcanopy trees can be trees like a pawpaw that actually does well in shade. Or they can actually, but they don't really want as much shade as people think. That's, that's the other myth there. Um, but mostly what they are are simply younger trees that have gotten enough light to grow, but they haven't got up and out. Or they're emerging trees that are, are taking the forest forward. Remember, we're not trying to go all the way to climax. Okay, unless we're doing a large system. The systems we're talking about, we want to hold. So we're going to mimic those layers. And we're going to hold them at the, at the height and size we want. That's really important to understand. Then we have our shrub layer. This is where you start getting into the tangle at the edge. Because there's not, I mean, there's, there are shrubs that grow in deep parts, like buck laurel is one. Not the most useful thing, but it, it does grow inside the, the woods. And it creates stands for wildlife. And that's fine. But again, on a larger system, not a smaller system. Most of our shrubs, when you when you pick blackberries, if you're a country boy, you know, you find the ditch and you go up the ditch to the edge of the woods and the blackberries are right there in the edge. Well, that's a shrub. Um, and, and any other plant that's a shrub kind of occupies that space. And then we have uh, our herbaceous species. So these, this is any plant, okay, is the best way to think about it, that grows up off the ground instead of flat on the ground, but doesn't get large enough that we call it a shrub. And those fill in all the little pockets. And then we have vining layers. This is where you're trying to get through that tangle, and you got those sticker vines, right? Those briars that are just twining and winding up everything, and fox grapes and muscadines and things like that. And, and they occupy that vertical space. As you can see, these are all spaces that get filled in. And then we have our ground covers. This is all your stuff that would be herbaceous, except instead of growing up, it grows out and flat across the ground. And then we have a rhizomial layer or a root layer. So a sweet potato would be an example of an edible root layer plant, okay? Or a groundnut, Apius americana, would be another plant that goes in the ground. Interestingly, though, both of those species are not just root yields. They actually have, in the case of groundnut, it's really more of a vining plant that grows up and onto things. And while a sweet potato will grow up and onto things, it's much more of a prostrate ground cover. So it actually occupies three of the layers. So a plant isn't necessarily one or the other. Sometimes they're multiples, or sometimes they act like one until they mature enough to act like another. So a very small tree may actually be occupying the space that you would think of as a shrub layer. As it gets larger, it may move into a subcanopy layer, and as it climaxes out, more into a canopy layer. So it's all about spaces. And you don't need to get complicated with that. You just need to think about that when you're evaluating what you're planting or what you've planted to say, where do I go next from here? And again, I want to kind of talk about why it's all about the edge. It's where most of the abundance is. The edge of any system is where multiple interactions occur. You can do this, you can do this analysis in a business. So the edge in a store is the display aisle. Okay, there's all types of things that lead up to that box being in front of you. You pull off the shelf. And when you pull it off the shelf, there's more boxes behind it. But the edge is where the interaction occurs. Another edge is the cash register. right? And those two places, if you're going to have a good experience in a supermarket, have to be positive. If either of those experiences are negative, you feel like you've had a bad experience. okay? Because they're important to the functioning of the system. In a forest system, it's different, but it's the same. That interactive edge, 
that place where different systems collide together, has the most abundance of all the things plants need. Light. Deep in the forest, there's not much light. All the light's up on the top of the canopy. So that, that canopy creates another edge. The canopy is creating an edge with open space above. And that's why the abundance is there. But on the edge of the forest, you get enough light in, but you get the shelter from the trees. And you get enough of the leaf litter dropping from the trees to create a mulching effect, which creates all of these young plants coming up, these bushes, shrubs, or herbs. So it's always about the edge. So when we're designing our systems, instead of trying to design a system that occupies all the space that we have, we might want to think about tessellating patterns, all right, or spiral patterns. Not always a rock spiral with herbs in it, right? You can actually spiral pattern or a horseshoe pattern. Often works really great for the person that has you know, a quarter-acre backyard. And I want to have a food forest, but I still want some open green grass for my kids to play with a ball. Well, in a horseshoe pattern that goes out along both of your side fences and across the back is a natural thing to do. And then we can build off that pattern, maybe a little seating area in a back corner that comes out like a, like a uh, sort of a peninsula, right? Or maybe even we have that horseshoe pattern and then we have a secondary horseshoe that creates a circular pattern off to one side. And that creates an, an edge that's surrounded. And that's going to be shaded but still get some sun. It's going to have what you call a glade. So when you have a forest and you walk through a forest and you're in a forest, you haven't left the forest, but you get to an open spot, we call that a glade. So we can create little mini glades. And we can create little pathways to get in and out of them, little arches for vines to go over, simply with a hog panel. That would be a way we could do that, or a cattle panel. So you have to think about, and, and what, we, what have we done? But, so now we go in, we create this horseshoe pattern in a backyard, We create kind of a wraparound piece of one, and we create a little corner that has like a half moon that's walled off. But instead of walling it off, we put a, ho a hog panel in two places and a path through it. Okay? We've created multiple more edges. The hog panel's an edge. You should see how that works. So you've got it coming up out of the ground. It bends over and comes back down. It creates a place for vines to climb. But when we created the path through it, the, the path itself now created another edge. So we have a maintained open space, and we're going to put something on both sides of the path. But then we step back from the path to the trees or the bushes or shrubs or whatever we've done to create this little al alcove, and we have yet another edge. And then across the top of them, we have another edge. And then coming back down the sides of them, we have another edge. And we've done all that with a tiny little design consideration. That's the edge effect, and it's all about the edge. So... The other thing I want to talk about today is the advantages you have if you have a small property. I hear from people all the time, I only have a quarter acre, I only have a third of an acre. Um, I'm not going to lie, I wanted more than that, and we found more than that. And the biggest reason I wanted more than that was to get the hell away from other people. So that's an advantage you don't have. But in all systems, we should look at what are the advantages we do have, and then use those advantages to our maximum within the restrictions that that system provides for us. And see those restrictions as guides. And as Jeff Lawton says, the more restrictions, if the designer does his job right, the more elegant the design. I think one of the biggest advantages is it's easy to irrigate a small system. And with forest-type systems, you don't need the kind of irrigation that you do for a lawn. But if you buy a house and already has lawn-based irrigation, you might change out a few sprinkler heads or anything, but you're set. You're just going to start killing a bunch of lawn, but the irrigation is already there. So a lot of times in these suburban communities, when you buy a house, it already has irrigation installed. If it doesn't, it's not a huge investment. And it can easily be done in many instances with drip irrigation. 
And since it's a relatively small piece of land, if you have a big enough roof, you know, setting that up with rain catchment is not that hard. A few IBC totes, and you're good to go. So there's a real advantage there. The next is you can, and you should, sheet mulch everything. If I want to sheet mulch three acres, it's it's a big cost, and I'm not going to find enough free material to do it with. But if I have a tenth of an acre property, a quarter of an acre property, let's let's look at a couple of realities. The house occupies a significant portion of it, then I have porches and driveways. And I probably have a front yard, and because of what happens to a lot of people when they do cultivate a front yard uh, erratically, you're probably not going to cultivate the front yard. You're going to cultivate mostly the backyard. So I'm down to a relatively small space, right? I might have went from a tenth of an acre to a twentieth of an acre. I can sheet mulch the hell out of that. If I time things right, I can get probably most of the mulch for free. Between community mulching services where like they, they take the Christmas trees and mulch them and things like that, picking up neighbors' bags of leaves and things like that. But even if I have to bring in mulch that I have to buy, it's 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 a significantly lower investment than trying to do it on a large scale property. That's why on large scale systems we put in so many pioneering trees, we're growing mulch. We're here, we don't have to grow mulch. It's also easy to intensively manage. I try to walk my property every day, but there's pieces of my property I go a week without seeing at only three acres. It's just a fundamental reality. I have work to do. I have a business to run. I have animals to care for. Whatever piece of the property they're occupying for that week, I spend most of my time on and less than the others. If you're managing a backyard that you can walk out your door and see all of your fencing around it, it's pretty easy to to take a look at everything at least a couple times a week, to identify problems, to identify opportunities, to identify ripening fruits and what have you. It's really easy to intensively manage, to identify a plant that you don't want and remove it by hand. Really easy in a small system. It's also a system that has tremendous opportunity and tremendous ease of creation of microclimates. And it's easy to create more. Remember that little alcove we talked about? There's a tremendous amount of microclimate going on there because we actually have a microclimate for the vines on the top of those arches we put in that's hot because it's exposed to the sun. We have a microclimate underneath them that's cold because it's shaded. And that whole little system back there creates its own little envelope with, with, with vegetation around it that cools that area. And if that area happens to be facing so that the outside part you look on it is east, We have a certain microclimate from the morning sun, or if it happens to face west, we have a totally different microclimate on it because it has the afternoon sun during the hottest part of the day. So we would make a decision that on the outside of that edge, we'd want to plant you know, more tender herbaceous plants if it's facing east and more Mediterranean tougher herbaceous plants if it's facing west. And both of those, neither one of those is a disadvantage. They're both advantaged toward the plant if we choose the right plant. The house itself on a small property creates multiple microclimates. You, you you pretty much have a wall facing all four directions. Now, how much can you do with the front? It depends. But there is a climate there. If it's south-facing, you've got sun hitting it all year round, right? And if you've got if it's if it's if it's north-facing, you've got just the opposite. You've got a very shaded environment. It might be something to mulch your beds and just put in stuff that looks like everybody else, but then in your wood mulch to inoculate it heavily with oyster mushroom and kingstrophoria mushroom and have a yield there that no one thinks anything of. And we take advantage of these microclimates, and we do whatever we can to create multiple microclimates. Because a microclimate is what? It's another edge. Every microclimate is another edge because that microclimate begins and ends somewhere. 
And where it begins, another microclimate begins, and yet we have another edge. And I, I, I keep restating the edge effect because it's so important. And the edge effect is always where the abundance is. If you see a guy in a boat fishing in a lake, and he looks like he's sitting out in the middle of the lake, and there's no edge, if he's catching fish, there's an edge. Maybe it's a hump. There's a, there's a hump underneath the boat that you can't see, but he knows it's there from experience or from his sonar or what have you, and those fish are congregating on the edge. If he's out in the middle of the lake and there's no there's no you there's no hill there I've been there there's no there's no ravine the bottom is flat there's no edge and if he's catching fish there's still an edge. It's probably that a huge mass of plankton has drifted into there by the wind and it's created an edge. And then the bait fish came in to feed on the plankton and the bait fish connect created an edge. And now the predatory fish have come in to feed on the bait fish on that edge. And that edge will only end when the fish that are feeding are so large that there are no other fish that will come and take them and form a further out edge. It's always the edge. Okay, another big advantage is most work can be done by hand. And, you know, it is the case sometimes that it makes sense to bring in like a small skid steer excavator to do certain mainframe work in the beginning especially if you're going to put in ponds or something like that, even in small scale. It's just faster, it's easier. The machine can do it with more precision than the average homeowner here can do it by hand. Now, if we go to Asia or Africa where they have abundance of manual labor and people that do this kind of work all the time, they can do it with more precision than the machine. But we're not there, and we have that available. So I'm not opposed to that. But when it comes down to it, 90% of the installation work on a small system is done by hand, and upwards of 100%, of the maintenance and harvesting, etc., would be done by hand. And that's an advantage because that means no matter how bad things fail in the world, you can still manage, maintain, and, and benefit from your system. Um, they are the most productive per square foot on the planet, as far as garden systems. They're more productive than your garden. They've always said, you know, the gardener has the most productive and most fertile land per square foot. A garden cannot compete with the multi-layered system of a properly designed forest. In fact, that, that, that annual garden might be tucked right into a forest and multiple yields coming out of the space that would otherwise just be a garden. And the garden itself will do better because it's in the forest garden and it has an abundance of predators to help with the pest pressures. And it has, if located properly, shade in the, in the, in the evening when it's usually the, the most harsh on your open annual gardens. So they are the most productive thing you can do when it comes to food production. They don't attract attention and are easy to secure. If you have a large forest system, you have people that want to hunt there, people that want to just see what's going on, what have you. Generally in the suburbs, at least in peacetime, people don't go into other people's backyards. And when you have a forest garden in a backyard, all somebody thinks is, oh, they have nice landscaping. They have nice landscaping. They, they usually, unless you tell them, they don't know what the hell's going on. And I, I appreciate that. I don't want people to know what's going on on my property any more than I have to. Um, and nitrogen-fixing plants are just not as critical. It's still a good idea, but when we put in a large system, we might want to take, for one productive tree, six, seven, nine nitrogen fixers. And I'm not talking about your cowpeas and stuff like that. I'm talking about like locust trees or uh, acacia. Or lucena or moringa, these you know nitrogen fixing trees, uh, mesquites, whatever it is that you need. Autumn olive is a, is a shrub species. When we're doing this in a backyard, it's great to throw some nitrogen fixers in there. But if we can sheet mulch everything with lots of organic matter, 
Uh, compost pretty much is a one one one. Good compost is one nitrogen uh, to to one uh, potassium to one phosphorus. And you might think, well, that's pretty low for a fertilizer, but we're growing in it. We're growing in it. And once we get the interactions going and we're dro chopping and dropping, we're just going to continue to grow that. So we don't need to go cramming in five nitrogen fixers to one productive species. We might have one-to-one -one ratio or even like a two-to-one ratio in favor of the productive species or even a three-to-one. And that's fine, especially if we're using ground, clover, clover, ground covers that also are nitrogen fixers like perennial clovers or biannual self-receding clovers. They'll do a lot of that work for us in that smaller system. So there's just... Like, when you look at it that way, here's my advice now, and it's not really what I did. It is kind of what we eventually did in West Virginia uh, at the Permethos Farm. But if I were to move to this property today that I'm on now, this three-acre property, I would have taken the area that I made into uh, what is supposed to be the Urban Garden Showcase, and it's, it's okay. But I would have not touched another thing. Other, I would have gotten rid of the horrible raised beds that were out back where the Google system is. But I would have focused on that one area, and I would have done it to the nines. And then I would have expanded out from there. I would have designed that as a zone one forest garden. And I would have put 100% of money, time, resources, and effort into that because of all the advantages I just gave you. Because that one productive system can probably provide for a couple up to a family of four most of what they need that a system like that can provide anyway. And then you have all of this material and all of this knowledge. I know this plant grows good here in this type of microclimate. So now I can use the, the, the system to propagate more of it and find other places like that on my property to focus on that type of a plant. And instead of worrying about a book telling me what guild to put together, I start just going, since I have this wonderful little micro forest going here, I just take all the stuff that grows good in my forest and I find another climate like that on my property or I create another climate like that on my property and I replicate that and that guilds itself. And that makes everything so much more simple. Um, I want to talk about some things that are different from typical food forestry when you think of large forest systems. Number one, the la layers are scaled down. Your canopy in a backyard may be as high as you can reach and that's a great place to keep it. That means once a tree gets to where you can't reach the top of it, you prune it back to where you can. We can hold a tree at that size for a very long time. We actually extend the life of many trees by holding them in smaller shape. And you don't need to worry about so much about rootstock. I'm for the biggest rootstock you can get on a tree. And you control the tree with pruning. If a person can take a sequoia, the largest tree known to man, as far as I know anyway, and put it in a tiny little pot and with wire and pruners make a bonsai tree that never grows higher than a foot, then you can control a peach tree or a plum tree or an apple tree to a six to seven to eight foot height. You really can. And in larger systems, I'm for not pruning at all. I'm for letting trees just go nuts. These smaller systems, we're going to train. And when we're going to train, we're going to hold those things down. So the way to think about it is think of a full forest system like we described as a picture on your computer in an editing program. And you grab the corner of it and you just drag it and resize it down to a third of its size. And it just resizes. And it all uniformly comes down. So our sub-canopies, our shrubs, everything kind of just scales down a little bit. And we determine what the maximum size of any element we want is, and we hold it there. Solar aspect is a major concern in a smaller system because it's easy to completely shade out areas. But you just work with it and manage it and understand the advantages of all these edges that it creates. I... Um, 
the number of supports, I'm sorry, um, there's a lot less sacrificial plantings, okay? There's a lot less sacrificial plantings in a, in a, a small system. And what I mean by that is what we talked about. You know, we're not putting in eight, nine trees that we're going we're gonna to kill over five years. You know, we're, we're, we're going to have very few trees that actually don't make it their full life expectancy in a system like this. So even when we're putting a nitrogen fixer like an autumn olive in, we're a lot more critical with our thinking, where does this go? We're in a big system. We just put a whole bunch of them in because we're going to go in there every year and give them a haircut and throw them on the ground, maybe cut them all the way to the ground. Ten years in, they're shaded out, they die. Right? For all the talk of being invasive, if you shade them out, they die. They're an edge species. But in a system like this, we want that autumn olive to be around. So we're going to think about placement of what would normally be sacrificial, cheap seed-grown or cheap seedling-grown trees, and we're going to be a little bit more careful with them. because, And we're going to be trying to select things that have functions other than support. Um, the next thing is they don't require swales or chickens, but both are welcome. But there's really no need to put a swale in on a, a quarter-acre food forest in your backyard. Now, it makes a lot of sense when you put in pathways to find contour and do a little bit of work to level it and create swale-like features, but there's no real need for it. Now, if we start putting in ponds, we want to create overflows with swales and things like that. There's wonderful things we can do on a small scale, but we don't need it. I think that's important to understand. We don't need it. We don't need to take chickens and put them in a tractor and completely clear it and completely tear the ground up because it's something that we can bring in a couple dump trucks and mulch throw it on the ground, and in six months, it's beautiful under there. So, it, again, it's not a don't do it. It's understand that you don't have to do it. You don't have to take as radical as an approach or as aggressive an approach because you're dealing with so much less space. Um, small ponds and, and, and barrels easily fed with roof catchment. Almost anywhere on the property if you get creative. I've even seen people do things with chains, like rain chains. They go 25, 30 feet on a horizontal but somewhat downward diagonal and move water on a chain off a roof. Really, really cool. So we can get very creative about moving water around with just a little bit of understanding how hydrology works, head pressures and things like that. And we can fill up tanks at various locations across a property like this. And that allows us to do a lot with rainwater. Or even with water out of our wells or our city water. Now I... I have an opinion about city water that is it is my last choice but I'd rather have it than not have water so if I need irrigation and my only choice is to irrigate with water from the city I'll do it and I won't apologize for it and I won't sweat it I will work to improve the situation where either I can bring in a well of my own or I can do whatever I want to do with rain catchment on the well thing I want to talk about that a bit there are places where either you have a well or you don't, and if you don't have one, it's because you have another source and it's too expensive to put one in. Putting a well in around here due to the rock is expensive and due to how much money the well diggers are getting to put in wells for the gas and oil people, it's expensive. In some places, putting a well in is easy. My grandfather had a well in Florida, even though they were on city water. He had it to irrigate grass. That's my other grandfather, my, my mom's father. They weren't into all this stuff like my other grandparents were. Um, yeah, they had a suburban neighborhood and they had a green lawn and they wanted to stay green. So he didn't want to pay the water bill. So being in Florida with sand and a water table at like nine feet, he had a guy come in for a few hundred bucks and install a well. And he did all his irrigation off a well. So you can consider that for irrigation or other reasons, even if you have city water. 
In fact, many instances when you are in places where they say, well, you can't use the water except certain days or something like that, uh, it only applies to you if you're on their water system. So if you're on your own well, sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't, depending on how your community manages water. So it's something to at least look into. Now, rain catchment, again, that's another thing to look into. And there are states I know where it's illegal. I, I have never seen anybody successfully prosecuted for a couple of rain barrels in Colorado. That, that, that's, that, that the law is written so that even that's included. Colorado, Colorado legislature is working on another thing to allow that. Like you usually should be have to be allowed to collect water off your roof. My point is there's always a way. There's always a way. There's always a way. There's always a way. And the best place to hold water anyway is in the ground. But if you live in a place that has good precipitation and then has periods of lax precipitation, rain catch is optimal for that. And many people in desert climates find this. They think, oh, I don't get much rain. But you do a calculation, and they could fill up huge amounts of rainwater during the time of the year that they do get that 10 to 14 inches that they get. I want to finish up with some special considerations to take into account as you're doing this. Um, number one, shape is not critical. Do what works. Do what works for you. Like I said, people always want to like fill the whole thing in or make it square, or make it rectangle. Whatever pattern best suits your goals. If you want open space in the center, then design around it. If you want little alcoves and little exploratory places for people to walk and sit and talk, design that. Don't even worry about the shape, whether or not it's okay. Worry about the shape you want and then create that. Put in more irrigation than you think you'll ever need. That's another mistake I made. I put in nowhere near enough irrigation uh, when I started doing my systems. Mainly my problem here is even though we get good rainfall with the dry periods, having you know four inches of soil and then rock um, makes it hard, even with trees. So I needed maybe more than, than you would need in many situations. But I think on small scale, if you can't irrigate an area, then fix it so you can. Make it so that you can irrigate it. And make it so you can irrigate it efficiently. Shrub sprinklers, drip irrigation, I like these a lot better than big giant systems that spray water everywhere. Spraying water, like with whirly birds and things like that, lets things stay really wet on the leaves and the top of the leaves. And not only can you get solar burn if you irrigate at the wrong time, you also encourage disease. You get a lot more splatter. Things come up from the ground. You get fungal infections. The, the, the closer you can get to just putting the water on the ground, the better. And in many situations, you have to think about how you're going to do that, but mostly these small-scale situations, you can. Um, next, consider ponds. Please consider ponds. Because they are another edge, and they bring so much to the table. Uh, I've seen people do ponds by going to like habitat stores or junkyards and getting old bathtubs and sinking them in the ground and then you know, putting a rock edge around them where you can't really even see. And I have discovered the power of duckweed this year. I mean, I had these two little garden ponds built with stock tanks. I threw some duck, duckweed in there. They went clear in a week. After that water's crystal clear, you can see the goldfish on the bottom of it now, two feet deep. Uh, I hadn't seen those fish except when they were feeding for over a year because it got so green and, and, and dingy and what have you. Uh, so duckweed. And then you have, when you do that, you take this duckweed, and it doubles like every three or four days. And then you take it when there's, well, what do I do with it? Well, if you feed it to livestock if you have them. If not, mulch with it. Incredible high nitrogen mulch. Um, also, think about power. You know, wherever you need it, think about running power there. It's great to do solar, but I'd rather have grid power than not power. Okay? Um, you can plant a lot closer and a lot more dense than you think you can. This little uh, 30 by 60 area that I'm working on just outside my window here, every time I do a video of that, I hear people go, What are you going to do when those trees get so big they all grow together? 
um, they're not going to get so big they all grow together. They're not going to get so big that I can't walk in between them and manage them because I'm not going to let them. I plant trees in these dense systems at about six-foot spacing. So six-foot stump to stump, center to center. And that's fine. They can grow together as long as I have a path around that. Um, maybe eight feet if you're more comfortable with that. But walk in a forest and see how many places you can stand where you take your arms and spread them out, and if you turn, you'll touch more than one tree at a time. And most of us have about a six-foot wingspan. That's about kind of where we're at. So just take a walk in a forest is one of the big pieces of advice I would give you as well. And don't be afraid to plant, to plant too close. You're probably going to have some things that do really good and some things that don't do so good. By planting really dense, as you find things that aren't doing well, it gets a lot easier to take out the chainsaw and cut it to the ground and go, there's some fuel. That didn't work here. Because now you're looking, out, looking at this big, giant open space. Now you've got a little glade to work with and to do something else with. And you let those other trees kind of move into that space. So don't be afraid to plant dense. Um, if you have animals, design in their nutrient flow. If you have rabbits, if it's possible, put them at one of the highest points so all the stuff that gets dropped down that you don't manage to pick up flows through the system. Think about small earthworks to make that happen. Another thing on animals, you really have to control animals in a small system like this. If you have chickens and you just let them out for a couple hours a day, they will destroy everything you've worked for. And I would say ducks, too. They'll make mud out of everything. Geese will make a mess. The, the animals that we have here, the ducks, and soon to be geese again, um, on some ways have made the system possible because it was so infertile. But other places, they've been a setback. And we've accepted that because we're in a larger system with so much. If we lose a plant or two to them, it's no big deal. If you let animals run wild in these small backyard systems, and this includes dogs. You have to think about designing in dogs to systems like this. Um you're going to have problems. You're going to have problems. For instance, my, my I guess you'd call him my nephew-in-law, right? So he's my niece's husband, um, wanted me to give them some advice of a piece of property that they were living on. And I looked at it and went, you, you really can't do much here. He's like, I thought you said you can do something anywhere. Well, you have these two big, rowdy dogs that you have no control over, that have no discipline. You have a very small backyard. You have neighbors on both sides and behind you. All the fencing is low fencing that you can see through and over. All the neighbors have dogs, and all the dogs do is run constantly back and forth through everything, just, and you can see dog paths everywhere. Okay, that's going to be very difficult to do much with. You're going to have to do like container gardening or something like that and get it up above their level because they're going to smash, trash, crush. So you have to think about how your animals go in the system. To me, in these small-scale systems, the three best livestock to consider are chickens, quail, and rabbits. And they go in tractors, or they go in rack-based systems, and then you move their fertility around yourself. Tractoring rabbits, tractoring quail, tractoring chickens works in these systems really well, though. But it has to be tractoring. And that means you have to think about when you design your system, pathways for that tractoring to occur. So we're going to plant dense, yes, but we're going to leave pathways that are at least the width of whatever tractor we're going to design for that system. And that's a fantastic way to do things. But like the whole paddock thing, like we're going to have a little holding area for our, our six little ducks and we're going to let them out like Jack does. In these small systems, it may not work. Now, there's another way it could work. If you bring the system to a level of maturity, to a certain level of maturity, and it's deeply mulched, six, four ducks running around would probably be fine. 
But if you're in establishment phase and you let those animals loose on that system, your timing's off. So timing's important as well. Um, another thing you want to really think about is building glades. So remember I talked about what a glade is in open space? You don't really want to fill everything in, even if you don't need that place to kick a soccer ball, right? You want some little openings like that to create those edges, and you want places that you can put seating or put a little annual garden in in a glade and, and just have that feeling and create that additional edge effect. Um, you really want to build structures for vines in a system like this. You know, it's great if you have a, a 20-foot locust tree and you put a muscadine up that. That's fine. If you have this, these small scaled-down systems and you have your peach tree and you put a muscadine up that peach tree, you're going to have a muscadine tree, and you're probably going to have a dead or very non-productive peach tree. So that's where you'd be better off building trellises along walls for your vines, building arches using cattle panels, building tower-based systems and things like that. Or when you do vines on your productive trees or even your support trees, do annual vines that have a life cycle. So there's nothing wrong then with maybe putting a butternut squash up that peach tree once it's, it's, it's large enough to support it. Because by the time that butternut squash kind of gets up into that tree for the year, it's probably already been harvested of its peaches. And it will probably actually help that peach tree in, by occupying that space. But if we put a perennial vine up that peach tree, we're going to block the airflow and we're going to ruin our fruit harvest. Even if it does fruit, it's not going to ripen well. So we got to think more about building structures for those vertical climbers in these systems. Um, fertilize. Fertilize, fertilize, fertilize. Organically, but fertilize. Um, when people want to do things naturally, what they think is, well, you don't do anything and nature takes over. Well, that's true to a degree. It's true to a degree. But in the beginning, nature doesn't have that much to work with. And when you put a system like this in, even if you use compost and sheet mulching and things like that, it takes a, a certain amount of time for those micronutrients to become available because you have to build life in your soil. And that takes time. So two to three years into it, maybe all you do is chop and drop and a little compost here and there and spread some rabbit pellets. But in the beginning, a good quality organic fertilizing routine will help get your plants established and off the ground. And that makes them strong, and then they're pest resistant. Because people say, well, I look at these systems, and people don't use any pesticides and have any pest damage. And I put this stuff in, and grasshoppers came in and ate it down to the, the cambium and killed my tree. That's because your tree was stressed. When, an, when a tree or a plant is stressed... It goes into a stress mode. And when it goes into that stress mode, it produces more sugar than normal. And pest insects hone in on those sugar, those carbohydrates, and take that diseased or stressed plant out of the system. That's how it's designed to work. So if we want to get our tree past that state, we need to provide it whatever it needs to get it through that state, and then it'll be okay. I wouldn't even shoot a person in the head or anything for using some conventional fertilizer if they had to. There are times when it seems to work better and makes sense. I try not to do it, but if I have a plant that's clearly going to go out and I can throw a little miracle grow on it and get it through that state and then go back to an organic program, that's what I'm going to do. If, especially if there's a lot of money or time tied up in that plant. If it's, there's 10 of them and four of them look like hell, let those four die. That's fine. But if I've got something I'm really trying to work through, I'll do whatever it takes, at least for a season, to give it an opportunity. I get in a second, third season with something, and it's still like, well, I don't really want to be here. Fine, you're dead. I gave you a chance. Cornelian Cherry is an example of that on my property. Um, and mulch and chop and drop like crazy. Whenever you prune something, never let it leave the property. Cut it up in small pieces, throw it on the ground. 
Uh, if you get weeds growing, let them grow before they go to seed. Cut them down with a hand sickle. Throw them on the ground. Grass, leave it on the ground. Never remove anything from the property unless you're eating it or selling it or making something out of it. If it's organic material and it came from your property, put it back down there. It's mined nutrients and it's mined fertility from your soil. Create that closed loop. If you do that, you'll have success. Um, what you've noticed today is I didn't talk a lot about different species of plants. Here's what I'm going to advise you to do instead of trying to become a botanist. Number one, find out all the things that are grown at least small scale commercially in your area and then use those species and analogs of those species that you like. Now, that doesn't mean if no one grows apples in your area not to grow apples, but it does mean you're probably going to have to think a little bit more about which apples you grow. Uh, go to gardening groups, ask people what they're growing. Most of those people are not permaculturists, but if they're growing a jujube tree or an apple tree or a peach tree or a pear tree or something like that, a couple fruit trees in their backyard, and they're doing well in your climate, then they're going to do better for you because you're going to give them a better environment. Spend time reading catalogs. Get the Stark Brothers catalog, get the Rain Tree Nursery catalog, get the One Green World catalog, and just sit down and read them. Read every plant in there. Read every species in there. And 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 because if I just give you a list of 40 plants like I've done in the flat past, most of it's going to go right in one ear, right out the other, and you're going to forget about it. But if you actually start selecting plants for your environment, you'll remember them because they'll be there. And you'll read about something and go, oh, I'd like to grow that. You'll find out its requirements and go, yes, I meet those. It's worth a shot. Buy a couple of them next season and put them in. And here's a big thing on that. Don't buy shit until you know where you're going to put it. I mean, I've made that mistake a lot. I have all these trees. Oh, crap, what do I do with them? And a lot, I've had a lot of losses because eventually I'm like, I've got to give it a shot. And I put them in places that weren't really prepared for them. So have your space prepared before your plants arrive. I will give you a full, few books today that you can read that can help you with this. The, probably the, one of the best ones to read to, to, to get a story and a narrative to go with it and to understand the philosophy of doing this is by Eric Tosmeyer, and it's called Paradise Lot. And it's about he and a guy named Jonathan something, I can't think of Jonathan's name right now, uh, that decided together, as a couple plant geeks, they were going to find a place, and they wanted a place where eventually they could have wives and families, and they have that now. And they found this really sorry-looking piece of ground, but it had a duplex property on, you know, duplex house on it. Like, that's great. We can, we can remodel one and share it until such time as we get that one done, and then we can remodel the other, and if we get, you know, women in our lives, we can each take a half, and it's all, and we won't have all this work for nothing, and that's exactly what happened. And that's a great book. Another book, probably the best book on the subject, uh, Eric, uh, Tussemeyer, uh, wrote along with Dave Jackie. And it's called Edible Forest Gardens. It's a two volume set. It's a massive book. It's way deeper in detail than you need it to be, but it has all the detail you'll ever need. It is kind of expensive. I have a link to both of those books on uh, the website today for episode, uh, what is it, 1764. And I also have a book there called Farming the Woods. That's, a, that's an outstanding book as well. And then there's a very old book called Tree Crops, A Permanent Agriculture. You can buy that on Amazon if you want to. You can just look it up, but... Uh, there is a scanned version of it in PDF that I have a link to today. So if you want to read it as a scanned book, you can. Let me tell you about a business opportunity that exists with this. Farming the Woods is so old that it's in what's called the public domain now. So anybody can distribute it. If you actually wanted to make it a published work, though, and, and create your own copyright on it so that you could sell it, as long as 25% of the content is new, 
then it's a new original work using the public domain as a piece of it. So if you were to take that book and go through it chapter by chapter and write commentary equal to 25% of it, package it up, and then publish it on a self-publishing platform like Lulu or something like that, you would have a new and copyrightable version of that book. So that's something somebody might want to take as a little project there and to make something out of it. So just just a little thought there. Uh, next up, I want to let you know Meads of the Week has returned. Episode 5 was published yesterday. Uh, I did a elderberry mead. So in one of my little food forest gardens here, we have our first crop of the year coming in already. I have a dwarf, dwarf mulberry it's called Mo, uh, Mora Alba Isai, uh, and it grows to about, oh, if you believe the books, five, six feet. If you believe reality, 10, 12 feet, if you let it. And it already is producing beautiful black mulberries about as big as my thumb. And so I got three cups of mulberries off that tree yesterday and made some mulberry orange mead. And uh, that's in Meads of the Week, Episode 5. You can check that on YouTube. There is a whole playlist of Meads of the Week. And as promised, Meads of the Week has returned. So I wanted to let you know about that. Um, also wanted to remind you guys, you can help support the show by joining the Members Support Brigade. To do that, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. If you like this show, if you think it's worth you know 20 cents an episode, consider joining. Another way you can help support this show is when you shop on Amazon, just go to TSPAZ first. That's all you have to do. By the way, that's a shorter domain than Amazon. TSPAZ.com. Whenever you're buying something on Amazon, it doesn't cost you an extra penny. And you can help support this show and the work that I do, uh, like today, which I think was a, a, gr a great educational show today. If you want to do member uh, business with other members of our community, remember you can go to tspbiz.com. That's our business directory at the survivalpodcast.com. Shortcut to get you there. Today's featured member of the directory is DC Custom Design. They specialize in customized metal fabrication. They have done everything from custom metal signs to dining room tables. You can check them out at the TSP directory, or you can call them at 308-455-7642. Again, DC Custom Designs. And that gives you an idea of the diversity available at the TSP Business Directory. Guys, please, whenever you're going to do something, check the directory and see if there's a member, a small businessman that you can do business with that's out of our community. I think it's really one of the better things that we've done for people is putting this business directory together. So I always want to remind you about that. And with that, let's talk about today's last, uh, the, today's uh, song of the day. Um, I chose a song I have actually played before for you. It's by the Eagles. It's called The Last Resort. And I chose it for today because it's one of those things that I think doesn't have to be, at least doesn't always have to be. And what we talked about today is one way to mitigate this. So The Last Resort is really about how the country was settled from the east to the west and how all these beautiful places, all this wilderness has been destroyed. We called it paradise And then everybody came, and then the people ruined it, put up a bunch of ugly boxes, and Jesus' people bought them, right? And we've turned the wilderness, in many cases, into the suburbs. And it's really kind of a travesty. But what we talked about today, farm forestry, forest gardening, brings this wilderness heart back to us, to where, can you imagine what it would be like? If a bunch of us got together and decided we were all going to live in a place together, we're all going to buy quarter acre lots in a new home development, and we we're going to form our own HOA. We we're all getting in line in advance and say to a developer, we want to just you buy your stock house. Everybody goes in and puts their options on it, and boom, we, we move into that. And we all did this. We all did this. 
or you try to do it with the urban farming guys. You go to a neighborhood that's so far gone, nobody cares anymore. You buy the houses for next to nothing, start tearing fences down. But what would it look like in 10 years? What would it look like a neighborhood done this way? And and I, I don't really mean that place in California. I can't think of what it's called right now. That It's been done, but it also has... I love that place on some levels, but on a lot of other ways, it's like all of the really great stuff's in like common area that, that's like maintained, probably through some sort of fee or something like that. What if it was just everybody's yard was maintained with their with them as the artist and, and and growing and sharing and exchanging? What kind of economy could we create, you know, with forty houses, forty houses even on a ten acre lot that were done this way? Really done up, but with everybody, the people with kids, they want to have a, a, you know, a soccer space to play ball or whatever. They have that, and other people are just filled in, and they're growing mushrooms in the understory. And everybody was doing that. Might we actually be able to transform what we think of as suburbs into a horticultural world that is much more hunter-gatherer than we'd ever think we could do there? Well, it's hard to do that in mass right now. It's hard to, to set up a project like that. I've tr taken stabs at it, and it's difficult. But you can do it wherever you are. You can do it. And that creates an environment where instead of worrying about bringing people together, maybe we just take the people that are there and educate them. Start bringing neighbors to your yard and show them what can be done. You know, the ones you can trust to do it with anyway. And if you get 70% of the neighborhood on board, doesn't matter what the HOA wants anymore. You now control it. So, you know, the best way to deal with HOAs is don't go there. The next best way is take it over. Take it over. That's, that's your other option. And try to bring paradise back, just like Jonathan and, uh, and, and uh, Eric did with Paradise Lot. We can bring these systems back. And it's amazing the animals that will show up, the birds that will show up. I'm amazed. Now, I see birds that I, I'm like, I don't. Ever and I've lived in Texas for a long time. I've never seen a bird like that before. I've got some bird. Maybe somebody can help me figure out what it is. It looks like a dove. It's mostly shaped like a dove, like a morning dove. It's much too small to be a dove, and it's not baby doves. It flies really, really fast, and I don't have them right now. I had them in the fall. And again, I'm a dove hunter. I've hunted doves my whole life. I know what a dove is. This looks like a miniature dove, but it's not a dove. It doesn't act like a dove, it doesn't fly like a dove, it doesn't sound like a dove, but it looks a lot like a morning dove. I don't know where they came from, but they've been back three years now. And I believe it's because of what we're doing here. We could do that everywhere. Think about that as you listen to this song. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
Provide. 